2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Clearview AI is by pretty much all accounts privacy advocates' worst nightmare. A small team working covertly scraped photos from all over the internet. Then using the open source knowledge and tools made available by artificial intelligence researchers, they built a Google for Faces, an app that takes in a photo of anyone and spits back a name and other pictures of that person. The company and the dilemmas that it raises is the subject of New York Times tech reporter Kashmir Hill's new book, Your Face Belongs to Us. Who should have access to such software? Should it even exist at all? What might it mean for our lives if facial recognition continues to permeate our societies? We'll ask Kashmir right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Your Face Belongs to Us, the new book by Kashmir Hill, is part investigative reporting at its finest and part map to the emerging world of neural network-powered facial recognition. Putting names to faces is the step that forces our physical selves and digital doubles together irrevocably, making our bodies subject to many of the rules and problems now plaguing life online. Kashmir uses Clearview AI, a roguish company that now sells facial recognition software to law enforcement, as a probe for understanding where this technology came from and how it might develop in the near future. This is a great, elegant book, and I'm delighted to welcome Kashmir to the show. Welcome.
3: Hi, Alexis. Thank you. Yeah.
2: So, facial recognition is this kind of dizzying technological possibility that's been hypothesized for so long, like minority report was in two thousand and two, that it's almost hard to muster the proper like "Whoa" response now that the real thing is there. And that thing is use on anyone for anything, facial recognition. So, Even though I've been familiar with the prospect of the tech for a while, reading this book turned out to be a pretty wild ride. And I want to start with one of the real stories of harm that's already come out of the tech. And that's what happened to Robert Williams, who's just this regular guy in Michigan. Tell us what happened to him.
3: Yeah. So Robert Williams is a very warm and funny person, a a suburban dad, lives outside of Detroit. And one day he is at work. It's early January 2020. Uh, He's at the office and he gets a call on his cell phone. And it's somebody claiming to be a Detroit police detective telling him he needs to come turn himself in. It's two days before his birthday. He thinks that this is a prank call uh, by one of his friends and says, I haven't done anything wrong. I have no idea what you're talking about. When he gets home from work, a police car pulls in behind him, blocks his vehicle in. Two officers approach him and start arresting him in front of his wife and two young children. And he has no idea what's going on.
2: Oh my gosh. And so what what was happening behind the scenes?
3: So Robert Williams was arrested for uh, shoplifting five watches at a Chanel store in downtown Detroit. Um, He he, took a while to find that out, but he gets taken to a detention center in Detroit. He is held overnight. And detectives the next day start questioning him, and they show him a photo uh, taken from a surveillance camera, and they say, "Is this you?" And he looks at this this kind of still of a large black man, and he doesn't think it looks anything like him. He shows it. He holds the you know the <laughs> photo up next to his face, and it was like, "No, this isn't me." And they keep questioning him, keep asking him, has he been to the Shinola? Has he been this, to this other retailer? Eventually, he finds out that he has been arrested for the crime of looking like someone else. He had been identified with facial recognition technology. His driver's license photo matched uh, to this, this person, uh, this you know stranger who had stolen watches from the store.
2: Wow. And one of the things that your reporting has revealed is that Actually, hundreds of law enforcement agencies are already applying this technology, right?
3: Thousands of law enforcement agencies in the U.S. and around the world are using facial recognition technology.
2: Wow. And one of the key drivers is the creation of this tool by the company Clearview AI. So um, what's different about Clearview from, you know, some other facial recognition that people might be familiar with?
3: So police have been using facial recognition technology for decades, um, usually on uh, criminal mugshots and driver's license photos. What's different about Clearview AI is both the algorithm they came up with, which is kind of fresher, more accurate, officers have told me, and then this incredible database of uh, billions of photos scraped from the public web, including social media sites. Uh, they now have 30 billion faces, they say, in this database. And when I talked to police officers about Clearview AI, in my early days of investigating them, officers just sung their praises about how this works better than anything they'd used before and the fact that it searches so many more people than, uh, than the faces they've been able to search in the past. Mm.
2: And it's not just, you know, photos that people have uploaded of them like smiling into the camera, right? I mean, Clearview is able to find people who are, say, in the background of some other photo that was uploaded to Flickr like 15 years ago.
3: Yes. And that has happened to me. Uh, I've had Clearview searches run on me and I've seen these incredible photos show up. I talked to one police officer who works for the Department of Homeland Security on child crime cases. And the Department of Homeland Security has spent something like $2 million now on Clearview AI. And he described for me this investigation where he had images of abuse of a child and you know, had been found in the account of a user outside of the US. It was unclear who these people are, who's this abuser, who is this child, where in the world are they? And ended up running the abuser's face through ClearView AI and got a got a hit to the man in the background of someone else's Instagram photo. And it was the crumb he needed to start this trail to identify this person, eventually locate him in Las Vegas, arrest him, and um, remove this child from, from his access. Wow.
2: So when I was reading about Clearview in your book, Your Face Belongs to Us, I was thinking they seem like they were built in a lab to make privacy researchers' brains explode like this. <laughs> they kind of did everything that people hoped wouldn't happen.
3: Yeah. I mean, they are quite an unusual company with quite an unusual background. You know, they uh, weren't originally planning to sell this tool to law enforcement. It really was a can what can we build and who can we sell it to?
2: Hmm. And let's talk about the components of what they built. So they have this database, which is photos from the public Internet. And they're kind of those photos are there basically because of, uh, you know, let's call it the sloppy or uh, aggressive uh, anti-privacy policies of kind of Web 2.0 companies. Would you Would you say that's fair?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the first places that they scraped was Venmo. Um, you know the social uh, social payments network, and uh, it was funny. the 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 kind of technological mastermind behind Clearview AI, a man named Juan Tontat, told me. You know, it, he noticed that privacy advocates were annoyed that Venmo was public di- by default, uh, and that he, it was great for him because Venmo on their homepage had this little widget that would show real time. Uh, like uh, interactions between its users and it would have their profile photos and, you know, what they had just paid for, paying a friend. And he had this internet scraper that would just visit the homepage all the time and pull down these photos every, you know, every couple of seconds. And it was one of the first, uh, uh, first big places, you know, where he got faces. And and yes, it really taps into this idea that these tech companies kind of encouraged us to put our photos online and didn't necessarily do much to help us protect them.
2: Yeah. And they've scraped from just about everywhere that you could imagine, right? I mean, if it's been public on the Internet, they've tried to grab it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, maybe your employer's website, educational sites, Flickr. There are millions of websites that have been scraped and wound up in their database.
2: So that's one piece. They needed the the data as represented by all these photos or represented in these photos, really. But then they also were able to make use of a lot of the kind of AI papers, research and actual tools, right? That the big, both big tech companies, you know, your Alphabet, your Facebook or Meta, right? They've all changed their names since this research began. But all these <laughs> people working on these things were, were not just making, you know, the ideas available, but also the actual like kind of tool sets to do this kind of Uh, machine learning.
3: Yeah, I mean, when I first found out about Clearview AI in, you know, uh, the fall of 2019, it was kind of astounding what they had done. And experts I talked to about it were kind of horrified that it had happened. And people I talked to and I myself thought it was a technological breakthrough, you know, that this little company had built this facial recognition app that could identify you know, just about anyone, and find all these photos of them online. But in the research I've done since then, and the research I did for the book, I found out actually that Facebook and Google had both uh, developed this kind of technology internally, and decided not to release it. And that what Clearview AI did was more of an ethical breakthrough than a technological one. They were willing to do what other companies weren't uh, willing to do.
2: I mean, there is that incredible quote in the book where uh, Juan Tontat, the one, the technical co-founder of this company, says, like, it's going to sound crazy, but, you know, that I just kind of Googled, like, how would you build a visual recognition software I'll to identify? Yeah. Yeah. But then that's what he did, basically.
3: Yeah, the building blocks for building a technology like this are kind of out there. And this is happening. I I, I think facial recognition technology is a useful story to understand because this is representative of artificial intelligence more generally. Mm-hmm. You know, these technologies are being open sourced. They're more accessible than they've ever been before. You know, if you have technical savvy, you have all of this information on the Internet and you compare it with these algorithms that are in, increasingly kind of being shared within academic community Openly. And more and more, I think we're going to see that the kind of most radical actors are the ones that are pushing the boundary and kind of uh, determining how it's getting used. And it's going to be in ways that make us potentially uncomfortable. Mm.
2: Yeah, I love the phrase you use uh, in the book, "ethical arbitrage." Right? That is, yeah. yeah. Many people could have done it, but no one else was willing to. Uh, we're we're talking with Kashmir Hill, tech reporter with the New York Times. She has a new book. It's called "Your Face Belongs to Us: A Secretive Startup's Quest to End Privacy as We Know It." If you've been following some of her reporting, it's about the company Clearview AI. We would love to hear from you on this show. I mean, what are your questions and concerns about facial recognition software? Maybe you've even used facial recognition software on yourself or somebody else and found uh, things that disturbed you. Feel free to uh, give us a call. Tell us that story. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Instagram, on Twitter, on threads. We're KQED Forum. Stay tuned for more. Kashmir Hill. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Kashmir Hill, a tech reporter with The New York Times, about her new book, Your Face Belongs to Us, which is a kind of a map to this emerging world of facial recognition through the story of this one startup called Clearview AI. Kash, um, some people may be asking themselves, how is this legal? <laughs> so um, how is this legal?
3: I mean, this is something that's really interesting, and I hope people get out of the book, is that it's not legal in some places and your face basically at this point in time has more protection in some jurisdictions than others and um basically in in after i exposed the existence of clearview ai outside of the united states privacy regulators in australia canada europe launched investigations into Clearview AI and they eventually determined this violates our privacy laws you can't collect people's images and you know uh, create biometric face prints for them without their consent and clearview ai has since pulled out of europe it's it's not doing business there Whereas in the United States, it's been more mixed. Uh, they have, you know, faced pushback in certain states that have stronger privacy laws. Uh, there are lawsuits in uh, three states that I know of, including California. Um, and Illinois is the kind of state I point to as having the strongest law that applies to this. The state passed a law in 2008, incredibly huh. presciently, uh, called the Biometric Information Privacy Act. And it says that Illinoisans uh, have kind of control of their biometrics, including their face prints. And if a company wants to use it, it needs to get their consent or pay up to $5,000 per use. And so Clearview is embroiled in litigation there. But at the national level, there has not really been pushback against what Clearview AI did in the United States. Huh.
2: I mean, it's part of the reason for that that law enforcement agencies clearly like this technology.
3: Yeah, I mean, you. Uh, I mean, with all things technology, there's this tension, right, between privacy and security, and and kind of freedom of information, mm. and. You know, clearly, law enforcement likes this tool. Um, Clearview AI has contracts with the Department of Homeland Security, with the FBI. Uh, the Air Force gave Clearview funding to do research into um, augmented reality glasses that can perform mm-hmm. facial recognition so that soldiers can use it to identify threats, you know, on bases. Uh, so so clearly, it is it is a useful tool. And the government likes it. But there's also this question of do we want all of our faces in this database? And, you know, when a shoplifting crime occurs in Louisiana, should police be running that face through a database that has billions of faces of people all over the world to try to make a match?
2: Hmm. I mean, their sales to law enforcement, too. That is, say, Clearview AI's. That's also just something they're doing, right? I mean, in the past of this very company, they've just let Ashton Kutcher and other, you know, (laughs) would-be investors just kind of use this tool for fun, no?
3: Yeah, so when Clearview AI first kind of started, when they first set on this as what they were going to do, you know, create a big face recognition database, they were actually planning on selling it to companies. Uh, They thought that would be more lucrative. So they were talking to hotels, and uh, grocery stores. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I mean, um, real estate companies. And they're also trying to raise money because they were startups. They were talking to a lot of uh, venture capitalists. And part of their pitch was, hey, like, Here's the app. Go try it. And there were some really incredible stories from those early days. My favorite is probably John Katsimatidis, uh, who is a billionaire in uh, New York, a businessman, has run for mayor there. Uh, They wanted him to consider installing it in his grocery store chain. And he had the app on his phone. And one day his daughter walks into an Italian restaurant where he's dining and she's with a man he doesn't recognize. her are clearly on a date and he wanted to know who the guy was. So he sent a waiter over to take a picture of the couple. Then he runs the photo through Clearview AI <laughs> and identifies her date and then starts texting her about him. And it just shows this kind of uh, this casual use of the technology, just that ability to recognize people in a real space and how it was this kind of uneven distribution of, of this, this, this power. Uh, it just reminded me so much of William Gibson, the science fiction author who has said, you know, the future is, the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. Right,
2: right, right, right. And I mean, to be clear, like other people could build maybe not exactly this system, but they could build something that has at least some portion of the capabilities of this tool, right?
3: And they have. I mean, there is there are public face search engines, uh, one that I have written about uh, called com, and it doesn't have as robust a database as Clearview AI, but it has done the same thing. It's scraped the web of public photos and, you know, you can go there right now and you're supposed to only upload your own face. It's supposed to be a way for you to find out which fo- what photos you have online that might be out there. But I have a subscription. It's $30 a month and I can do 25 searches a day. So clearly I'm not going to search my own face 25 times a day. It it seems designed for a different kind of use. and. And yeah, it's it's out there. I mean, it's part of why I wrote the book right now is that I feel like this technology is starting to, you know, very much spill out of the bag. And this is the moment that we have to think about, you know, how ubiquitous do we want this technology to be? Who do we want to have access to it? How big should these databases be? Because now is the moment to constrain it until it is just everywhere. And we can't claw back the kind of worst and creepiest uses.
2: Yeah, I just ran myself through there. One thing that's impressive is it gets bald me and not bald me, <laughs> right? I mean, it's yeah. able to, to find you through time, right? These, these searches.
3: Yeah. So I was doing um, PIMI searches on people who pre-ordered the book if they wanted me to. (laughs) And so I had this one person, um, I ran his photo. He actually works in the privacy space and it brought back all these profiles for him, uh, you know, very professional photos that he'd put out there knowingly. But then there was a, a tiny little version of his face where it looked like he was in a crowd. And he said, can you tell me about that one? And so I click through and it is from a website called Gay Newsletters. So pretty Mm -hmm. revealing as to his sexual preferences. And he's in this kind of like a almost his face is almost blurry. He's in this photo in a crowd watching a kind of risque dancer. He had no idea that photo was taken. He had no idea it was on the Internet. And he was just really shocked uh, that it was out there and that, you know, this kind of public face search engine could find that.
2: Um, Let's bring in our first call. Let's bring in uh, Dave and Los Gatos. Hey Dave, welcome. Um,
4: This is a fascinating topic, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I'm an intellectual property lawyer um, and I'm dealing with questions about uh, training AI, for example, and training machine learning algorithms and things, so this is a timely topic and it's fascinating. Uh, My question is, um, a lot of foreign jurisdictions seem to be ahead of the curve Um, in regulating things like this and then doing so more effectively than the U.S. probably will, even if we eventually get around to it, like the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe, for example, and Australia, as you mentioned earlier. Um, So I'm wondering how we could think about potentially trying to regulate this at a federal level or a national level. Um, HIPAA seems like it might be the closest thing. I don't think copyright's effective enough, really, because you've got fair use exceptions and things like that. What do you think about trying to add certain kinds of um, biometric information, I don't know, fingerprints, retinal scans, things like that, to HIPAA as protected protected health information or personally identifiable uh, information that then could be
2: Mm -hmm. regulated? Mm -hmm. Dave, thanks uh, so much for that. Yeah, what do you think, Cashman?
3: That is a great question, Dave. Thanks so much. Um, So I do point in the book to this law we talked about a little earlier in Illinois called the Biometric Information Privacy Act. Uh, You know, the ACLU and other civil liberties groups do feel like this is a blueprint for a law that could happen on the national stage. It says that people should have control over their biometrics and that companies should need permission to use them. I think a really exa- a really great example of how this law protects people is Madison Square Garden, this events venue, uh, very famous, you know, the Knicks play there, the Rangers play there, all the big bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, the owner James Dolan, you know installed facial recognition in the venue um, in 2018 for security threats and discovered uh, decided in the last year that he would also use it to keep out his enemies, <laughs> namely lawyers who work at firms that have, sued, you know, Madison Square Garden or its parent company. And so there are now thousands of lawyers that are on this ban list. And it doesn't matter if they're working on the case, uh, you know, against his company or not, when they come to the door, when they get to the metal detector before they even present a ticket, they get turned away. And he's able to do this at his venues in New York City, uh, you know, Radio City Music Hall and Madison Square Garden but not at the theater that he owns in Chicago because of this Illinois law. Hmm. And so that's one example. Other laws that protect people, actually for you Californians, is the, the, the big California privacy law that gives you the right to access your information and delete it. So if you do not like the idea of being in Clearview AI's database, you can go to the company and ask to access your information. You can see what they're holding on you. And you can ask to be deleted. So that is also a powerful law when it comes to this database. It doesn't keep you from getting put in it, but it does allow you to get out of it.
2: We're talking with Kashmir Hill, tech reporter with The New York Times, about her new book, Your Face Belongs to Us, A Secretive Startups' Quest to End Privacy. As we know it, we're also taking some of your calls about your questions and concerns about facial recognition software. Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on all of the photo-leaking, <laughs> privacy-degrading uh, <laughs> tools like Twitter, uh, Instagram, uh, and others where we're at KQED Forum. Um, Cash, I remember when we were working together, I remember covering PredPol, which was like one of these predictive policing software tools. And, you know, when we really dug into it, it, it wasn't that impressive. You know, it didn't really seem to change policing so much as provide some kind of rationale for what the officers already wanted to do. Are we sure that Clearview actually works? Like there's some testing, right, that would allow us to know that?
3: yeah. so there's a federal lab, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, that has been actually testing facial recognition algorithms for more than twenty years now. And it used to be bit five or six. There are now hundreds of companies that have algorithms. And when I was first writing about Clearview AI, you know they had offered free trials to police officers. So there were, you know, thousands of officers who were using this technology, and at that point, it wasn't tested, and that kind of shocked me that they could use it in kind of real-time investigations without knowing, "Hey, is this accurate or not?" Um, it's since been tested, and it is very accurate. It's it's kind of on the same level as some of the be- best facial recognition vendors in the world. Since time in China being one of the mm. leaders, um, but. You know, facial recognition technology was really flawed for a very long time. Uh, the people who were working on it were often white men. They trained it to work best on their faces and on the faces of other white men. And so there were, you know, flaws in how it performed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's troubling. It, it, it has come, you know, there have been improvements since then, but it's very troubling that it was used in the real world. Four decades with these existing flaws, Hmm. Um, and and it's not confidence
2: inspiring. Yeah,
3: no, no, and and there are incredible researchers like Joy Boulamwini who help point that out and make you know the vendors aware of it. They've taken the criticism to heart, and you know tech companies and facial recognition companies have now trained. Uh, have now trained their systems on more diverse faces and made them better. But there have also been, you know, questions raised about how they got those faces. Google famously hired a contractor to collect diverse faces. uh, And that contractor ended up targeting homeless people Hmm. and students. Uh, One of the Chinese companies basically offered its technology for free in Zimbabwe so that it could collect you know, darker faces to train its technology. Hmm. Joy bulamwini has called this data colonialism. Hmm. I think it's a very powerful yeah. concept.
2: Let's bring in another call. Let's bring in uh, Don in Menlo Park. Welcome.
5: Hi, thanks. This is a really interesting concept because um, I, I think it really speaks to privacy overall, obviously. Um, the thing that really came to mind was, um, you know, we make a choice as adults to put our face online Um, but what about children? And so my husband and I have decided to not really talk about our children online very much, you know, maybe a milestone here or there, but not, we're not blasting the world with their faces and certainly not their names. And it's really concerning to me that there are organizations and apps and startups trying to make money off my, well, my face and certainly my children's face, um, without regard for their safety, because I can certainly see, you know, as maybe a slightly paranoid parent, that uh, a nefarious person would use this to mm. exploit children um, and do bad things. So I don't know if you've looked into the safety concerns, especially as regarding minors
1: yeah. and
5: and um, uh, vulnerable populations, even vulnerable do- adults. Um, so
3: if you could speak to that. Yeah,
2: done. Thanks so much, Don Menla park um, Great question. I mean, how do you think about this for your own kids, Cash?
3: Thanks, Don. Yeah, I, I definitely think about this as a parent. Um, I actually ran my then-five-year-old's photo through PIMEyes and there was a hit for her. Um, A photo uh, came up and I was surprised because I thought facial recognition technology didn't work that well on children's faces, Mm -hmm. but it did find her. And PimEyes does have a way to remove results, which I did. Um, And I've actually been talking to parents about this and specifically influencers, you know, on TikTok Mm -hmm. who are in many uh, instances kind of turning their children into content. It's, you know, part mm-hmm. of the appeal. And there has been this real backlash on TikTok uh, in over the last year of parents maybe becoming aware of these technologies mm-hmm. and realizing that the footprint they create for their child may come up in a future search of their face. And so, yeah. I mean, I talked to somebody at Facebook who worked on privacy there and he said, I never post photos of my children to the Internet. And I was like, well, I put, you know, I do. But on private accounts, he says, not even then. I just do not put photos hmm. of my children on the Internet. And so I I think it's hard for parents because we want to share just yeah. the beauty of these moments with our kids. And I personally still post photos of my children privately for, you know, networks of my friends, for my family members. But I I do think that to protect your, your children and even just their kind of right to create their own online footprint, Um, that it might be wise not to be posting them publicly because it it will be findable.
2: Well, and it kind of drives at the idea that privacy is not really only an individual responsibility, right? That it's kind of collective, not just your parents, but your friends too, right? I mean, if you're with these kinds of technologies that we're talking about, if you're in the background of a friend's photo who posts a lot on public stuff, then you will be in Clearview's uh, database, right? It's not something that you alone can control.
3: Yes, I think any parent who is out there trying not to get photos of their children posted to the internet have have faced the battle of a family member or a friend who wants to share a photo of their their child, and they you know they go on Twitter or something, and all of a sudden they see that their child has been posted publicly. I do want to mention when it comes to children, and this is a real uh, darker turn in this conversation, but I I have talked to a lot of child crime investigators, and this is part of the reason why they found Clearview AI to be such a valuable tool. It was the first time they had a face recognition database that had children in it so they could find victims. Oof,
2: yeah. We're talking with Kashmir Hill, tech reporter with The New York Times, about her new book, Your Face Belongs to Us, a Secretive startup's quest to end privacy as we know it. We are also taking some of your calls and questions. You can get some of your uh, comments, too, after the break. What do you want to know about how facial recognition software works, or have you had an experience with it? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The emails form at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Kashmir Hill, tech reporter of the New York Times. He's got a new book out called Your Face Belongs to Us. It's really a map of this emerging world of facial recognition technology. Um, Kashmir, one of our listeners uh, over on our digital community on the platform Discord um, has this to say. Privacy will be a thing of the past right down to the most intimate, granular level. Everyone will be exposed from the ballot box and shopping list to your bathroom and bedroom peculiarities All be known to anyone who wishes to know it, most often in Glorious Video. So get over the idea of privacy in the future. There won't be any. Either behavior will be prescribed and we will live as clones of one another, or privacy will not matter. And humans will simply be accepted for who and what they are without much concern or remark. What do you think?
3: So I felt this way when I first started writing about privacy and technology more than a decade ago. I was among those who's pretty resigned that, you know, there's benefits that come from all this information floating around and being able to learn about others and people can learn about you. But I, my views have changed writing about this. I, I, am not hopeless about privacy. I think it is more of a battle uh, now just because there's so many different technologies out there gathering information, getting more powerful, getting better at analyzing data. But I I do think that we can preserve our privacy. But I, you know, partly it's the choices you make as an individual, but it's what we do as a society. And I think the best example is, um, you know, earlier in American history, when when we started developing these little bugs these like tiny recorders that you could hide in someone's bedroom or in their planter and record their conversation and there was a mass freak out about this in the United States and we ended up passing wiretapping laws that you know protect the privacy of your conversations and this is the reason why the millions of surveillance cameras that surround us in our modern life in America only watch us and don't listen to us. Hmm. You know, we can make choices to preserve our privacy. We can constrain the technology. We just, we have to choose to do it.
2: So interesting. Um, I, you know, another listener wants to know, um, you know, when scientists built fingerprint technology, the FBI and government, quote, took it as a matter of national security. How have things changed? Like how's, and I would even extend that to say, like, how do you see a fingerprint or some other biometric as being distinct from, you know, your face print?
3: Well, um, so, I mean, fingerprints aren't collected about everybody, right? I mean, uh, fingerprints were collected from originally just, you know, uh, people who were arrested or criminals. Uh, then it extended to members of the military. There's kind of this this creep where it got larger, but, you know, we're not all fingerprinted, Um we are starting to be. I think if you do TSA pre-check, you tend to uh, give a fingerprint to do a background mm-hmm. check. Um, but these things tend to start with with groups that we're kind of comfortable having less privacy. And that is certainly the case with facial recognition technology. When the government first started building its database, the FBI was building a database, it was just going to be criminal mugshots. And, you know, I watched these old congressional hearings where they said, you know, we're not interested in just anybody, any old American going about their life. We just want to be able to track the faces of kind of known criminal offenders. And then a few years later, they started including... Driver's license photo databases in some in some in some mm-hmm. states, and then Clearview AI comes along and it creates this huge database that's you know almost everyone in the world as many people as they can get off the internet and they start selling it, and and this is a concern that a lot of civil liberties activists have that that these companies like Clearview AI other surveillance technologies. Are creating these huge databases of information that would probably be unconstitutional if hmm. the government created it. And then they're selling it to the government. So it's kind of a work around the constitution and a warrant requirement that might have existed. And Clearview is, yeah, part of a, a larger trend that. It's like when uh, the government
2: buys location data from. Exactly. Phones, right?
3: Yeah. Exactly. It's the same thing with location data. Um, and so there's there's a lot of concern about that and just this this kind of need to revisit constitutional protections when so much of the surveillance state is now being privatized.
2: Hmm. Let's bring in an interesting question from uh, Kazuko in El Cerrito. Welcome. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Um, I was just wondering, how does it work if one is
1: twins
2: or corporate for that matter. Oh, yes.
3: You are not, you know, if we just let this technology be unconstrained, it will be very bad if you have a bad twin. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I actually, uh, one of the people I was talking about earlier, Madison Square Garden put all of these lawyers on a ban list. And one of them I know, he has a twin. And so when his twin tries to go to a Knicks game, he gets pulled aside, he has oh, your wow. his ID, and he'll say, "You know, it's not me. That's my twin. Um, please let me in." And it has worked. But but yeah, I mean, right now we're we've mostly been talking about government use of this technology, but a lot of companies are starting to um, use facial recognition technology to fight off shoplifters. You know, kind of known people who have been problem-causers in their stores, and that is something I wonder about, especially seeing the way that Madison Square Garden turned Mm. the technology on its enemies, you know, it could usher in this new era of discrimination where companies have your face on a list because you wrote something bad about them on Yelp or you tweeted something nasty about them or they don't like your politics or they don't like where you work. Um, So that is something where, again, where I think we need to regulate this technology because those protections are not in place right now.
2: Mm. I mean, the Bay Area has a pretty intense property crime problem right now. And I can imagine there are some listeners out there who've, you know, had their packages stolen or their car bipped or gotten mugged. We're thinking, you know, this Clearview AI thing maybe is not the worst thing in the world. I mean, do you think there is a role for some technology like this, if not this specific company or this specific technology?
3: I think there are clearly beneficial uses of facial recognition technology, uh, from corporate use to police use, uh, maybe, you know, individual use. I just think that we really need to choose what we want it to look like and that we shouldn't have to if we like some uses of facial recognition technology we shouldn't have to just accept the whole package and just accept that it's going to be ubiquitous that's happening to us all the time you know that's it's on cameras we're tracked everywhere we go I, I do think that there's this spectrum of uses and we we should choose what is reasonable what's appropriate and what's you know, uses that don't let it become this chilling, dystopian panopticon where you feel like everything you do in the real world co- could come back to haunt you.
2: You know, I, I also think for for people who might be thinking like, oh, well, what are the odds that this like could, you know, that like your political affiliation could come into play here? Seems like a good time to bring up the founders of Clearview's connections to really kind of the hard right in the United States.
3: Yeah, so the the people who started this Juan Tantat was kind of a uh, the technical co-founder, you know, was one of those tech dreamers. Uh grew up in Australia, at 19 years old, moved to dropped out of college and moved to San Francisco because he wanted to make it in in the tech world. It was 2007. He started making Facebook quizzes, he moved on to making iPhone games. And was kind of like, you know, liberal in the San Francisco sense, played in bands, grew his hair long. And then at some point around 2015, 2016, moved to New York and really kind of joined that Trump wave, became very conservative. uh, And the seeds of Clearview AI were actually in the Republican National Convention when Trump was becoming the candidate. The uh, two people that, Juan Tat and A friend were there. They met Peter Thiel. He ended up becoming one of the... He became the first founder in Clearview AI before it was called Clearview AI. Gave them $200,000. First investor.
2: First investor, yeah.
3: First investor. They wouldn't exist probably without that first $200,000. And they were at the Republican National Convention. And according to this person that Juan Tantat was with, Charles Johnson, who was very involved in the early days, kind of known as Chuck Johnson on the internet, he said that they were at this you know, walking around, there's all these people and they wanted to know kind of who is a friend, who is a foe, how Mm -hmm. useful it would be if you could just kind of point your phone at someone and know... Uh, you know, who they were, they actually had this interest in kind of physiognomy and phrenology. The idea that you wouldn't just know who they were, but from the features of their face, whether they might have criminal tendencies or, you know, be somebody likely to cheat on you um, or might even say how intelligent they were. I mean, some of the early ideas were very very shocking to me.
2: Hmm. And I mean... I, I guess one component of this that seems significant is that, yeah, you know, a lot of people are worried about the democratic future of the United States after the twenty twenty four election. and you've got this tool that used in particular ways, seems like it really could have a chilling effect on demonstrations and other kinds of things. I mean, you think about how many demonstrators showed up at at different events uh, and like Trump rallies and things. If you deployed this technology, to, to, to find out who those people might be before they got to the event. It seems like it could have a chilling effect on that kind of, that kind of speech.
3: Yeah, I mean, interestingly, the the, the path of Clearview AI, um, you know, Juan Dantat does disavow those kind of early views he had about physiognomy and says that now that he's apolitical. And Clearview AI was actually used uh, uh, after the January 6th um, hmm. kind of a t- attack on the Capitol. It was used to identify some of the the rioters there. Uh, and so that, that kind of political journey really was interesting for the company, but I could not help but think back to my early days investigating Clearview AI when the company did not want to talk to me and I was having to find police officers who would tell me about using the app. And the company actually was tracking me. And they put an alert on my face uh, so that anytime a police officer um, uploaded it, they would know and they blocked me from having results. And so I do know, you know, clearly I can can decide who can be found and who can't be found. And I think with any technology, you know, it can be used for good things. It could be used for bad things. But to trust the technology, you have to trust the people
2: using it. And I came away from this book, um, not exactly trusting these people. (laughs)
3: <laughs> I mean, with a book like this, usually, you know, at the end, you might say, here are the future possible things that could go wrong. And I didn't really have to do that with this book because I could just point to China and Russia yeah. where They're further ahead of us in the application of facial recognition technology, and they are using it for some pretty dystopian things. I mean, Russia has used it to identify, uh, you know, protesters against the war in Ukraine, and then they'll get tickets for unlawful assembly. China uses it from everything from identifying, you know, protesters in Hong Kong and Uyghur Muslims to... Uh, Naming and shaming people who wear pajamas in public, using it to control how much toilet paper people take in in a Beijing public restroom. I mean, when you have a technology like this, if you don't regulate it, if we don't make very conscious decisions about how it can be used, it could be such a weapon of
2: control. Mm. We're talking with Kashmir Hill, tech reporter with The New York Times, about her new book, Your Face Belongs to Us. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Um, I um, want to ask you a little bit, just uh, where did you end up on just like should this technology exist? Should it have been built at all?
3: Who? Um <laughs> I mean, I talked to all these engineers and scientists who've been working on this for decades and decades. And they I asked them this question, you know, are you knowing where it's gone, uh, knowing how far it's come and dystopian possible mm-hmm. uses like we see in China and Russia, you know, are you glad you worked on this? And a lot of them didn't really answer that question. They would just say, you know, when I was working on it, it was hard to imagine it would ever be this good. Uh, A lot of people, a lot of scientists kind of in the 90s thought, computers could never be this good at recognizing the human face, that it was a very mm. special kind of human intelligence to be able to recognize a face when it's smiling, uh, when it's in profile, when you're wearing a hat, and when you're wearing glasses. And it took a long time, basically more powerful computers and lots of faces for them to train on, thanks to the internet, to get it to this place. Mm. Um, and it was interesting, like they, they said, like, we didn't think that much about the privacy concerns. We weren't thinking that much about bias because we could barely, you know imagine it, it might one work, day right. be, yeah like it would be loose in the real world or be this powerful that it could be deployed at this scale um again you know there are beneficial uses for facial recognition technology and so i think that is it just seems with these technologies it's so inevitable that we develop them but we do need to constrain the technology we you know I think of AI as like our little children and we are the parents and we need to set rules for it we don't need to just let it decide how it gets to use be be used because of what it's capable of doing and this is a moment when we need to make some choices Mm -hmm. about how this technology is deployed and how these companies build the technology.
2: You know, now that Clearview has kicked open the door, though, I mean, do you think the tech giants will follow suit? Because it feels like on a on a political level, one of the key things here is if the tech companies decide to lobby against, you know, any kind of privacy regulation around facial recognition, the chance of getting a good and strong law that could be protective of people while allowing you know, the positive uses to occur seems pretty slim.
3: So I do have a prediction here. Um, you know, Uh, at Meta or Facebook, whatever we're calling it these days, the chief technology officer, Andrew Bosworth, has specifically talked about his admiration for facial recognition and has said that he would love to put these capabilities in the augmented reality glasses that the company has been building now uh, for a couple of years and has said, you know, we're a little bit, you know, basically this is a couple of years ago, but he said, we're a little afraid to, it might be illegal and we do think this is something for society to decide, but this would be A great tool. You know, you walk into a cocktail party and there's someone there that you should know their name, and we could give it to you. We could put a little name tag on them. So, what I think could happen now that the taboo has been broken is that Facebook makes this an opt in uh, model Hmm. where, you know, you and me, Alexis, we are pretty public people. We have a lot of photos on the Internet. We're in media. You know, we want people to talk to us. We could say, yes, Facebook, you know, make my face identifiable to anybody, to anybody in the public. They're welcome to know who I am. And maybe someone else who is more private would say, "Okay, Facebook, you know, because they have this social graph. They could do Mm -hmm. this. Just make me identifiable to people I'm friends with on Facebook or friends of friends or maybe you could say you know you don't opt in at all you don't choose to be recognizable but i could absolutely see the kind of models of privacy and publicity that we've developed online basically make that leap to the real world which sounds kind of it sounds good right like you could consent to do this at the same time what happens then to people who opt out people whose faces can't be identified what would we think about the people who choose privacy and i often have seen in my coverage of this that people who choose privacy get kind of punished in, 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 in subtle ways and sometimes uh,
2: less subtle ways. Right. Because people end up being like, well, why are, why, are, <laughs> why are you hiding from the Internet? You know, why, are, why can't I find your profile on X or Y? Right. It seems somehow suspect once everybody else has already made that decision.
3: I always think back to when Google first rolled out its Street View cars and allowed people in Germany to blur out their houses if they didn't want them to be on the Internet. And the people who blurred out their houses ended up having activists show up and egg them and left, note, left notes in their mailboxes that said Google's
2: cool. Oh, man. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kashmir Hill Tech Reporter with The New York Times for joining us.
3: Thank you, Alexis.
2: So fun. Uh, Kashmir's new book is Your Face Belongs to Us A Secretive Startup's Quest to End Privacy as We Know It. Really excellent book, great journalism. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
0: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.